1 Kings 17, starting to read at verse 7. Sometime later the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Go at once to Zarephath of Sidon and stay there. I have commanded a widow in that place to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, Would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called, And bring me, please, a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat and die. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said. But first, make a small cake of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me. And then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. The jar of oil will not be used up, and the jug, I'm sorry, the jar of flour will not be used up, and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord gives rain on the land. She went and did as Elijah had told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up, and the jug of oil did not run dry, in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse, and finally stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, What do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Give me your son, Elijah replied. He took him from her arms and carried him to the upper room where he was staying and laid him on his bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought tragedy also upon this widow I'm staying with by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this boy's life return to him. The Lord heard Elijah's cry, and the boy's life returned to him, and he lived. Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house. He gave him to his mother and said, Look, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. This is the word of the Lord. So I wonder this morning how you think people in society generally, maybe people in your family or friends or work colleagues, view the Christian faith. What do you think people really think 
about God. I would suggest for me, a few decades ago, if I asked a number of Christians what they thought, they'd say the question they would maybe be asking maybe some of their friends is, do you want to have faith? Do you want to have faith? But I'd argue for now, maybe two decades later, there are actually the question we're going to be asking, which is the question that we need to return to, that we've had to ask possibly for generation after generation since the ancient days, is not that. Because now with secularization, with technology, anybody could find any faith that's available to them. They could put their faith in any of the major religions, and they've got it pretty much at their doorstep. They could turn on the computer, have an access to every type of philosophy and religion that is out there. People could do that. So the question actually is not, do you want to have faith? The question is, which faith? Which faith? What do I put my faith in? How do you know what's true? And how do you know what's false? What's good and what's bad? How do you learn the discernment of spirits is one of the ways we could put it. Now, to those of you who sat here this morning and think, well, if I said that to my friends, they'd say, what a load of nonsense you're talking about. I don't have faith. I mean, I believe in the ordered world, the cosmos. I believe in physical stuff. I believe that uh, that's here, but I don't believe anybody created us. We're simply accidents of nature. Nobody created us. There is no spirit world. But I will concede that people are significant. You know, people, we probably all agree in our culture, have rights. People are significant. And actually, it's a whole group of French philosophers who said, even to say that is an unbelievable step of faith. It's a spirituality to say, people have rights, people have significance, but actually, it's all just a scientific coincidence that we're here. It is a faith. All of us put our faith somewhere. Everybody has faith in some things and someone at some level. And the question for us is simply this, that we're going to spend the next three weeks by looking at the life of Elijah, is how do you know what's true or what's false? How do we know what's true or false in our culture and our society? How are you going to discern between a good way and a bad way? How do you do it? How do you go about it? And we're going to go back to Elijah because Elijah was at a time in the 8th or 9th century BC when it was a time of spiritual guides, it was pre-Christ, and they were looked to, these prophetic figures were looked to to be able to discern the difference between what was of God and what was not God. There were lots of opportunities, there were lots of religions. The question wasn't about faith, the question is, where do you put your faith? So many gods to look to, so many things to serve. And I suggest to you, Elijah is a good place. We're going, to rut- we're going to rattle through it for three weeks to think about how do we decide? How do we make good choices? How do we decide? So we're in the 8th century, 9th century BC in Israel. The king of Israel at the time is somebody called Ahab. And he's entered into a kind of political marriage with Jezebel. 
who is a kind of uh, wife of a prince or a king in the northern region uh, of Israel, in Tyre and Sidon, sorry. And together, they'd kind of had this political marriage, and they went on a systematic campaign to make Israel a religiously pluralistic society. Not one God, just lots of gods. They wanted to be an idol-worshipping society. And what we find is that we're in a very dramatic moment that David read for us. Is that before our passage, Elijah, who is the last prophet, prophesies that the Lord is going to send a drought, a famine on the land. And this is the direct challenge to the Baal worshippers. Baal was a kind of environment, the Lord of the heavens and the storm. And so this word that came through Elijah was like a challenge to Baal to say, okay, the Lord is saying so. Let's see who is the Lord of the heavens. Let's see who is Lord of the heavens. But as famine descends, people start to die, Elijah has to run for his life. And he hides in the Kerith Ravine, uh, which is sort of where we pick up the story. And he faces starvation. Elijah's life is literally hanging by a thread. But the Lord then speaks to him. The Lord speaks to Elijah and says, I'll save you. I'll save you. And what we see here, what happens to Elijah, shows us what the true God looks like. We're going to explore over the next few weeks. And we see that in verse 24 at the end, the testimony. So let me just pray as we look briefly at this morning's passage. Father, would you open our eyes? Would you open our hearts? Would you open our minds to receive you this morning? Would you burn away the fog and the clouds that uh, govern and so often shape our lives? Would we see you? Amen. So let's start by saying, how do we know the true God from a false one? Let's going to look at three things. Firstly, the true God is an outsider's God. God says to Elijah right at the beginning, if you've got the Bible in front of you, have a look at verse 7. Go at once to Zarephath of Sidon and stay there. I've commanded a widow in that place to supply you with food. Now this is shocking for Elijah. There is a map on the back of your note sheet. Because God is saying this. He said, I'm going to save you, but I'm sending you out of Israel to Tyre and to Sidon, to a different kingdom. Sidon was a pagan, Gentile country. And on top of that, God sends Elijah not just to a pagan country, he sends Elijah to a pagan poor woman. I mean, how radical is this? This is nearly 3,000 years ago, when women had no rights whatsoever. And God says, she'll be the one who will save you. She will be the one who will save you. So God sends Elijah out and shatters every single barrier of social and religious order that we see in so many different ways between people. So why, why in the world would God choose this little lady? I'm assuming she's little. Text doesn't say that. I've added that. Sorry to those who love scripture. Uh, but I've imagined her as quite little. Uh, and, uh, but why would she choose this lady? Why would God honor this lady? 
And there's something radical in this, isn't there? The answer is that God is a God of outsiders and a God of grace. The true God of his salvation, regardless of merit, regardless of any of your qualifications, regardless of your pedigree, your background, what gender you are, what class you are. Really, God, although God loves that, it's not really the deciding factor for God. We have a missional God, a God who reaches out. The religious people, religious people don't need a God of grace because they can do it themselves. They don't need to be saved because you can save yourself by your own performance. And what this wonderful miracle that we see in verses 9 to 16, it's funny, we were asking you to think about what you can give in this season in February, but I haven't got time to talk about this amazing miracle that takes place between 9 and 16. Particularly for us who are longing for resources, thinking about what God can provide. But in a simple sense of obedience to God's word, miraculously God provided, he provided, he provided. Because God was at work. It was God's time. Because God had spoken. And God kept on providing miraculously in a way that's impossible to understand humanly. All of us need God's grace. Secondly, the true God is a living God. The next instance we see this really dramatic instant where this little boy gets sick. And in verses 18 to 19, essentially what we find is that she picks this little boy up and takes him to Elijah, probably her own son, and takes this dead, dead boy, can you imagine, to Elijah. And look at the word she says of accusation to Elijah. I thought you came with blessing. I thought you came with blessing. But you've come to punish me for my sins. Elijah is one of the great prophets of uh, the Old Testament of history. Yet what does Elijah do? He simply grabs hold of this boy and takes him up into the room. Puts a little bit boy down on the bed. And looks and cries out to God. Lord, my God, let this boy's life return to him. Sorry, that wasn't very rasping, was it? That was a bit gentle English, kind of. Lord, my God, Lord, my God, let this boy's life return to him. And you'll notice in verse 12, and it echoes verse 1 as well, this lady, the way she describes Elijah, when she meets Elijah, she knows the difference between the God of Israel and all other gods. Why? She describes the God of Israel as surely the Lord your God lives. Your God is a living God. Your God is a living God. What is a living God and how is it different to other gods? An idol is something that we project, we create, we build from our own imagination and all the stuff around it. It's under our control. A living God is a God of grace, a God who's free to act in his, in his world, to choose, whether we choose it or not. We spend so much of our life trying to control everything, but a living God won't be controlled by us. And both Elijah and this woman know it. Now this morning if you say, well, I'm not sure I want to believe in a God like that, a God is free to choose, a God is free to decide what's right and what's wrong and what's good and what's not good for us. 
it's possible this morning that you're saying, I don't really want to live in God. Do you know, I'd rather have somebody of my own design. I'd rather have good God look like how I want God to look. See, a lot of people have a particular kind of image of a loving God that is a God of outsiders, a God who loves the marginal, accepts the broken, always gives grace no matter what. But also there's a lot of people who have a God who's a God of truth. Everything matters. A God of justice. A God of righteousness. And they spend their lives trying to please God through our works. Elijah is showing us that a living God is a God of grace and truth. Grace and truth together. And when Elijah asked for the little boy's life back, did you slay this little boy as punishment by sin? You can hear that cry, is it my own sin that's killed this boy? What do we see then happens to this little boy in answer to that question, is it my sin that's killed? The true God is a stretched out God. The key is in this stretching. I know it seems slightly strange in saying this to try and make sense of it, but even if you don't really know any other biblical references about the Christian story, you'll realize the action of prostrating yourself is an action of deep vulnerability. It's saying, Lord, take my life for this boy's. Take me. But God didn't take Elijah, did he? God didn't take Elijah. Why? Because the answer to the God of the Bible is the question, did he, did he die for his sins? The answer is no. Why? Why? And we know this, obviously, through the New Testament, because your son can't pay for his sins. But God's son can. My son is going to pay for your sins. My son is going to stretch out and impart life to the world. My son is going to descend into the world and like Elijah, stretch out and cry. And cry, Lord. And that's why God is and can be a God of truth and justice, but also a God of love and of grace. Why? Because he came to do it for us. Only God could do that for us. Only God could take our sin, pay for it so we could know eternal life. So when you have these tensions that seem impossible, I know I occasionally talk about it, the both and stuff of truth and grace that intellectually seem really difficult and hard to reconcile. That God somehow is entirely just, yet also always loving. He's full of truth all the time. We have a picture of a unique God, a living, breathing, nuanced, whole God. I'd like to suggest to you this morning that in these passages, there is no other spirituality that's nuanced like that. A God full of grace and truth who'd come into the world and stretch out and die for our sins and to die for your sins this morning. My son will die, not yours. Amazing grace. Amazing grace that he would stretch out and die for us.
So briefly then, how can we serve this God over this coming week? I just want to point you to three quick things that we could think about this week to put into practice. Firstly, if you noticed, you need to get into the text, just what a humble poise Elijah has, both before God and in this situation. He's got this amazing poise to the realism of life, but also he's not intimidated by the darkness around him, the chaos around him. When he prays, he doesn't moan and complain. He's not passive, sort of trying to beckon God. He simply cries out to his God. And the thing is this, if you have a worldview that can't handle everything in heaven and on earth, It's not real. It's just a fantasy. It's not true. It's not true. So this morning, wherever you put your faith this morning, you need it needs to be able to handle everything that the world, both everything in heaven and earth, can throw at us. That's what it means to have a real and true faith. Our temptation is to continually oscillate between some kind of fancy world where we imagine everything's okay then complete desolation when actually things don't go our way, when God doesn't answer the prayers that we think God ought to, or God doesn't do what we think he should do. Because the God in our heads is often not a living God, the biblical God, the true God. Elijah, in the, in the, in the midst of all this, has this amazing humble poise. That means he goes after God. Look at it. He goes after God. Don't do this, God. Please help me. Look at this darkness. Please help me. Secondly, um, embrace the outsider. It's a really obvious part of this bit of passage. But how did this woman really, really learn who the true God was? This strange man came into this woman's life. Elijah, remember, is a weird outsider, an Israelite prophet. But this Elijah and this lady have this life-changing encounter. And the thing is this, unless you're willing, through the gospel, to embrace people who are very different than you, the poor, the lowly, people from a different class, people from a different age group, people who are lost, the power of the gospel won't be a work. And the thing is this, if you're religious this morning, if you're a person who's deeply religious, you will constantly feel inferior or superior to people. But the gospel says, that's gone. That's gone. Because the gospel says, you are a sinner. How dare you feel superior to anybody? We're in the same boat. But the gospel also says you're loved with an extravagance of your love like anybody else. So don't dare feel inferior to anybody else too. Because I've paid for that. I've destroyed those barriers. I've given you a new identity. That's not what it means to be my children. And that freedom of being absolutely loved but also clear and humble before God because we know our own brokenness means that we are confident enough to go out into the world, to get beyond our 
the boundaries of our life, our cliques, the things we hold on to that mean that you know, we just want to stick where we are. Elijah literally embraced the other and encountered God. Both this lady and Elijah found grace. You need the gospel to be able to have these kind of encounters. And when you find the gospel, and you'll find the gospel, sorry, as you have these encounters. And lastly, see the resurrection. I don't know about you, it is a little bit of narrative um, as well, but the most important thing, I guess, is it wasn't Elijah's words that saved this lady alone. This lady had to see the resurrection. Do you see that? Now I know the true God, she says, right at the end of the passage. She'd heard Elijah's words, seen the wisdom, seen a miracle, actually, but she needed a resurrection too. See, if you become a Christian, if you give your life to Christ, it's not enough to simply say, I just want to try my hardest, I'll study the Bible, I'll really try to turn up to one or two church meetings to make me feel a little bit better. You need a resurrection. You need a resurrection. You need to trust in the God who takes you from death to life and gives you a new identity, a new status. And the challenge for us, those of us who've been Christians for a while, is this, is that are we showing the people around us that resurrection life? Are we demonstrating, displaying, as I like to say, God's splendor? Or as our hymn had it, the ineffably sublime God to those around us. Because once we've received his resurrection life, things change. Things change for us. We take hold of the life he's given us, the new birth he's given us, to, to show it and to demonstrate it to those around us. So is our love, is our joy, is our kindness, our goodness, our faithfulness so different to the world's? Because the thing is this, I think in our generation, our words will not be enough. Knowing a load of truth is great and it's good in itself, but we're called to wholeness. We're called to whole life discipleship. So let's um, just take a moment to, to gather and pray. Heavenly Father, let's just be still for a minute. Father God, I want to thank you this morning for these extraordinary encounters in your word that we have the privilege to see, to unpack a bit and explore. But Father, I pray more than anything that the power of these words, the power of these accounts, the power of these stories, the power of the living God would fall afresh upon us and change our lives. Father, would you take hold of our lives as they are and would we see your resurrection power at work in us and through us? Not for our sake, but for yours. For yours, Lord. We have a world that needs to know the amazing news, the extraordinary goodness that we have and experience and know. Father, we ask that it would spread out to those outside, to those we live. And Father, for those who are struggling this morning with that.
just ask, would you fall afresh upon them this morning? Would you humble yourself to take God's hand this morning? To actually want to walk with him this week? Because actually he wants to walk with you. But will you take his hand? And Father, thank you that each one of us is capable here and able here to touch people's lives beyond this church building. Our families and our neighborhoods, thank you that you have given us people we can bless. Father, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you that we are a people of resurrection power. It's not about me, it's not about works, all grace, all faith. Amen.